I look at the competitive landscape, if I look at the market size, it's like, we have as good of a shot as anyone to build the category defining company or, or get up there with the you know top two or three. It's not gonna be easy to get there, but it, it, the path seems pretty clear. All right, I just had Jared on the pod and he's building a category defining marketplace business in the offsite retreat space. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom he shared in this episode. So definitely listen through the whole thing. But two particular pieces that stood out to me was one about how and when how and when to build technology and how to tailor that technology that you're building specifically to the customer, not just building for the sake of building, but actually building things that people want and will use. And he broke down a really awesome process for how and when he decides to build technology and uh, you know, outlines the decision-making process that goes into the technology that he does build uh, for his business. And then later on in the episode, he actually talked about how he raised a $3 million seed rounds in 20, you know, late 2022, early 2023, when, you know, the market was just absolutely crushed for raising funds in a startup, especially a non-AI startup. Uh, he broke down exactly what he did to raise that capital and what resonated with the investors he was ultimately bringing into the company. So uh, definitely listen all the way through. It's some really exciting uh, topics and super uh, interesting wisdom imparted here in this episode. We got Jared Kleinert on the pod today. Uh, so you are the founder of Offsite, uh, essentially Airbnb for offsite retreat venues. You get into a lot more than just venues. So definitely want to kind of dive into what that means. You know, uh, let's just start like what is uh, what is an offsite retreat and how do you help people who are doing offsite retreats? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for having me on on the pod. Uh, yeah, offsites are really any gathering of people for two or more days uh, where you're trying to solve pressing problems at your company, uh, and, you know, build a better team and, and hopefully uh, leave that experience inspired, transformed in some way. Uh, and if you take a step back, you know, a lot of companies were remote or hybrid before the pandemic, uh, maybe like 15, 20% of companies. Uh, but that was already a huge shift from 10, 15 years ago, uh, when I first got to attend offsites as an employee of a company called 155. Um, back then, it was like, you know, a single digit percent of companies were uh, remote hybrid. And of those that did offsites, it was only like the sort of pioneers, the ones that saw the future, like Automatic, GitLab, Zapier, Buffer, um, Basecamp, they were like the sort of the popular ones that did offsites. Uh, but over a decade, like more and more companies went remote or hybrid. And during the pandemic, we were all forced into that situation. And so uh, I was betting during the pandemic that a lot of companies would stay remote or hybrid after the pandemic. Uh, and then from my experience being at an early stage startup over a decade ago that was remote, uh, realized that like every company that was remote or hybrid would have to plan offsites for employee engagement, retention, alignment, uh, and you know, started a software business so that hopefully thousands and thousands of companies can plan, you know, tens of thousands of offsites. We can help millions and millions of knowledge workers have that transformative experience. But at the end of the day, it's like just gathering of people for, you know, one or more nights, uh, do some sort of programming, have fun, and, and hopefully come out of it uh, with a 
different sense of connectedness to colleagues in a different company even. Cool. When did you start Offsite? About three years ago during the pandemic. Three years ago. So like literally like right during the heat of the, heat of the pandemic then? Yeah. Had a, had a few showers where, you know, over the course of, you know, those two, three, five showers was sort of formulating this like second, third, fourth order impact of remote work. And uh, originally decided I was going to build like not only uh, a software business, sort of like the rippling meets canva slash airbnb of all things offsites where you could like plan an entire offsite in, in a matter of clicks that's sort of the, the ultimate vision um but also that was like under contract for 20 acres of land in upstate new york at one point and thought i still think that there could be like physical offsite campuses that are optimized to facilitate these experiences but uh went down that rabbit hole for like six months uh was meeting with like town officials in upstate New York in a town called Bethel, which is where Woodstock took place, like literally signed a contract to buy 20 acres of land. Uh, and thankfully, like got out of that contract and decided to just focus on software um, and, and sort of tech enabled services to sort of like prove out that model. So but, you were going to buy lands to uh, to actually build an offsite facility? Basically to build a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, And then do that like in every major city across the the country, um, sort of like the B two B version of Getaway or or Wander. So if you want a free business idea, you know uh, that is still available for you to do. Like there has not been optimized offsite campuses yet, um, but it's pain in the ass unless you have like previous real estate experience. I've I've seen a few. There's one in Conshohocken. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's like right outside of Philly. Uh, used to be called. I think it was called Work Merc or something like that, but they just changed the they changed the name. Uh, I'm blanking on what it was called, but uh, yeah, that's what they do. They have like this big conference center. It's just you know it's the whole floor of a building, and they just have all these conference rooms and activity rooms and meeting you know meeting space, and it's like literally what you're talking about. The trick, is, the trick would be standardizing it across major markets, um, kind of and elevating the experience in those markets. So like we work industrious um getaway like they've all like figured out a really good model for one campus and they just proliferate proliferated that across like every campus so it becomes this bigger brand um i think there's an opportunity to do that but yeah there, there's a ton of like boutique individual campuses for offsites and resorts and hotels and like that's what we do now we just partner with them uh and bring lots of business to them uh where we're matching like startups planning offsites and Hotels that have no idea how to talk to an offsite versus a Fortune 500 versus a wedding group. <laughs> and, um, we're kind of pairing the two together so that more offsites can happen. Nice. Uh, well, we work arguably didn't figure out a great model. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good on the ground experience. It's just not a sustainable model financially. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I I don't know what the latest is, but I was hearing rumors that they just they just went into bankruptcy or something, and they filed for bankruptcy. And I was hearing rumors yeah. that Adam Newman's going to snatch it back up for pennies on the dollar. I don't know if that's just hype or if it's uh, reality. I don't know what the latest is, but uh, that would be just like an epic comeback story if he bought the thing back for like you know two cents on the dollar or something crazy. Be more epic than Sam Altman being fired for you know four days and then yeah, coming right. back. <laughs> yeah, that that was a that was an interesting. Uh, I mean that that one's that that story's been played out at this point, but that was a really interesting. Uh, you know that I think that was like a master class in how to handle a coup. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, do you, uh, so the, the WeWork thing, uh, do, do you think that, uh, so do, do you think that's like a good business model, like what they have going there? I have no idea what the sort of underpinnings of it financially are. I was, I was more speaking to the fact that like the actual on the ground experience is still a really good experience if you go into a WeWork building. Uh, and then they sort of standardized that across all the locations and like try to elevate the co-working experience. So I think they've accomplished that. And like I was in a WeWork, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago in, in Boston when I was visiting an employee and, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Uh, I've been to sort of small mom and pop co-working spaces in New York and where I live and also in like small towns in Georgia uh, where I used to live. And like WeWork is a better co-working experience. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if... I think in the future, maybe maybe after we sell off site for you know trillions of dollars, uh, I'll go back and start the uh, the real estate you know campus version of this, um, or I'll pick some other problems to solve. We'll 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 see. Nice. Uh, I heard the best plan for WeWork. I heard laid out by David Sachs on the All In Pod, where basically whoever buys it at a bankruptcy triage the leases, and uh, you know the you put them in three categories. Like one is ca- leases to cancel, to default on. Uh, the second is leases to renegotiate. And the third is leases that are fine. Just keep them the same. And then the leases to renegotiate basically go back to the landlord and say, we're not going to pay you anymore. We're either going to cancel this or you're going to agree to a rev share model. So you you make you know a percentage of our revenue at, you know, out of this space. And uh, and then obviously like SoftBank and all these big VCs that, you know, bank bankrolled the whole thing, you know, eat the loss on all the tenant improvement and all the, you know, uh, you know, crazy build out that went into these spaces. So all that just kind of gets washed away. And now like whoever the new owner is, has all these amazing like class A, you know, top notch real estate properties that, you know, with like favorable lease terms. And now they can actually go and build a good foundation to scale like a real business uh into the future but uh it was funny because like when all this stuff was going down before the whole like first meltdown i think it was like 2021 one of my friends was like vp of MA uh, or like vp of uh like property acquisition or something at regis uh and i remember him telling me all through like 2019 2020 he's like he's like you know i was in this industry for a decade and uh like i just it doesn't make sense like whatever they're doing makes no sense it, he's he's like they're going to crash and burn in a spectacular fashion and uh he totally totally called the shot on that <laughs> I, I think it's i i'm kind of hoping uh like i feel bad for early wework employees um one of our team members was relatively early at wework i have a couple of friends that were like uh first 50 uh or so I feel bad for them and sort of, you know, we don't have to feel too bad for VCs, but like, you know, you feel bad for the people that invested in that and it didn't go their way. Um, that being said, I do think uh, the commercial real estate space is going to crumble and that's good for offsite because we would have even more business. There would be, you know, 85, 90% of companies that are remote or hybrid that, that qualify in like the knowledge working category, not manufacturing and stuff like that. But I think there'd be more remote or hybrid companies if uh, those companies weren't locked into multi-year leases with any real estate provider. Uh, and so I think that is still a wave of remote or hybrid work that's about to come over the next two, three, five years. Uh, and WeWork's kind of the first domino to fall in that category. And so uh, 
yeah, that, that should only be good for us. And, you know, running a remote company is really hard. So uh, there are lots of benefits to it at the individual employee level. There's benefits for recruiting talent from around the world. Like we're uh, doing final interviews this week for a sales hire. And like, I'm interviewing people across the country and like theoretically could interview people around the world to find the best person for our culture and for our, for what we're looking for. Um, and that we don't have to pay for them to like go to an office. They don't have to waste time commuting. We can go on for you know days about the benefits of remote work, but there are some drawbacks. And like one of them is establishing a culture, keeping people engaged, retaining them, aligning them on clear company strategy. And so offsites are are one of the vehicles that all the pioneering remote first companies have used to, you know, increase employee engagement, retention, alignment. Uh, we follow the same playbook ourselves and have regular offsites, you know, on a, on a quarterly basis, and then um, obviously help you know hundreds of companies do that as well. Awesome, yeah. I, I have a remote first company. Uh, you know, I just hired a head of outbound in Boston, so it's like we're we're right. hiring people all all, all over the place. Um, so you were talking about commercial real estate crumbling. I'm I'm interested about that. Uh, I I live in Center City, Philadelphia. I think you're in New York City, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, you know, at night I can you know I'm I'm up on a high floor, so I can you know see all the office buildings. And when they leave the lights on, I can just like see right through the whole floor out the other side. There's like no desks, and there's so many spaces like that you know in Philly. And uh, San Francisco is way worse. I was in San Francisco. Uh, you know, a few months ago. And that was just, you know, definitely way different downtown than it was a few years ago when I was there before the pandemic. Uh, but what's New York like? Is it similar? Or uh, there's like more like financial companies there. So I imagine there's probably a lot more, you know, in office stuff happening with the financial space. But uh, is New York, you know, just, you know, on the rocks with commercial real estate as well? Or what, what's going on there? Again, I'm not an expert at commercial real estate. Um, my my stepbrother happens to work for a, a real estate firm, though. Uh, and it, to your friend's point, like uh, their firm uh, never touched any of the WeWork stuff. Like they had opportunities to lease to WeWork and decided never to do so. Um, at least in New York, it, it New York's probably one of the very few cities that will feel pain less in this space. Uh, but there's, you know, we're, it's still hurting here as well. I think you, you have like record vacancy when it comes to office space, you know, in terms of square footage, even in New York, uh, just probably less of a percentage compared to other cities. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, like, if remote work or hybrid work continues, which I, I would obviously bet yes, but who knows, maybe we can have a full reversion to, you know, in office work again. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but there's still like the Elon Musk's of the world and the Google's of the world and Amazon's like trying to force people back to the office. I think it's partly because they have older leadership teams. I think it's partly because they spend lots of money on, you know, grade A real estate. Um, and, you know, it, like uh, there's this guy, Howard Lerman, uh, who's the founder of Rome. Uh, he used to, he was the founder and CEO of Yext, uh, which is a publicly traded company. And then this is his new, like new company. Um, but he had an interesting comment where he says like every company at scale is distributed and like, like every fortune 500 company is remote or, is hybrid, right? Like you just can't have hundreds of thousands of people working in the same city. Like they have offices all over the world, like they have remote teams. So the, the 
every company is hybrid, basically. It's just, you know, how how are you going to interact with your maybe team on a given day and, you know, run your company? Um, all this to say, like, I, you know, commercial real estate, I think is kind of fucked. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious to see how, like, those places get repurposed over time. Uh, like, there are ways to convert, you know, office buildings into uh, housing. And, like, we have a big housing problem, but that that's a really big uh, conversion from a logistics standpoint, from a legal and like city official, you know, building permit standpoint. Uh, I don't want to be in real estate right now. And so I'm glad I, glad I didn't build a hotel or an office offsite campus. You know? <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who, who, uh, who's in the residential real estate space. And he was saying that it's like, it sounds good on paper to convert office space to residential but he said it's like not really feasible for like zoning reasons and you know to re you know the office buildings aren't really made for residential and you have to have all sorts of special stuff for residential and it just you know it basically costs the same as building new right. uh but uh so let's let's go back to offsite. I want to talk more about that. Uh, you know, we had some interesting conversations about you know service versus product business. I think you guys kind of have a little bit of both in your your business stack, and uh, you know we kind of talked a little bit about the pros and cons of service versus product. And uh, you know, let's dive into more you know offsite uh, what you guys do. So obviously, it's a platform to you know, facilitate an offsite retreat for a company. Uh, but what does that look like? You know, let's say I'm planning an offsite, you know, how would I use offsite to plan my offsite? Yeah. Uh, well, if you're a startup founder, you've probably heard the phrase, like do things that don't scale. Uh, and so bring, if we go back to 2020, 2021, I have multiple showers where I'm like collectively, you know, this makes sense to build the, you know, Canva rippling for all things offsite planning. Uh, the vision has always been to build as much software as possible, take the manual process of planning an offsite, which sucks if you ask your executive assistant, if you ask your chief of staff, head of people, whoever's planning your offsites, maybe you've done it yourself if you're the founder of a small company, like it's terrible to plan these things, like so monotonous and you have no idea where to start with negotiating with hotels and, you know, how to plan an agenda and like you had to book all these restaurant reservations and there's a million moving parts. Um, I hypothesize all, all that can be sort of automated away over time. Um, and a lot of companies have started that way, like uh, take what was a manual process and automate it away. It should be uh, the formula for a great company. But we got to do things that don't scale and see if it's a viable company to start. Uh, I also am not a technical founder. So uh, my first move was seeing if I could get companies to pay for someone or something else to plan their offsites. And so uh, back in probably 20, probably mid 2021, uh, started reaching out to some founder friends, uh, some CEOs in various peer groups and asked if they wanted us to plan their offsite for them. Uh, and sort of offer end-to-end offsite planning. And so we got a few clients without ever having a website, without ever having an email, even um, a logo. <laughs> Just, you know, it was like, hey, we'll do this thing. Give us money. Um, they agreed to give us money. They paid up front, which is great. And then I personally planned their offsite uh, and got, you know, a bunch of clients that way. And then that has persisted where today, you know, you know, maybe three years in, like we've done about 200 offsites all around the world. 
uh, in an end-to-end planning capacity. And so that is a service business. Uh, and the service business is valuable uh, by itself. Like it's, it's a profitable service business, pretty high margin. The goal has always been to build a software business. And so now we find ourselves in this uh, interesting transition where we're trying to build a software business. We've now shipped software. The software itself is starting to generate revenue. And so as a team, we're just trying to decide like how fast to transition to software versus services. Um, but also like what can we learn from the service business? What's not going to be relevant for the software business? Um, sort of just it's a balancing act between two companies. And I like I don't know if this is a, a good or bad way to start a company. I don't know if it's uh like it's it's definitely kind of playing the game on hard mode. Um, uh, my hope is that by doing this, you know, some of the benefits are we're generating revenue, which you know, coupled with some uh investor backing has allowed us to build up a team and like find, you know, like give money to the best people possible and like you know build hopefully a longer term software driven machine. Um, I also think the thing we're learning is sort of what software to build. Uh, and we're going through like all these, you know, like thousands and thousands of different edge cases related to planning an offsite uh, and also figuring out in the process of planning an offsite, where are people wasting the most time? Where are they wasting uh, or spending the most money? Uh, and, you know, we're kind of thinking through what software could help the fastest. Uh, and so I think that's just a fundamentally different approach we've taken than maybe some of our competitors even who have been, uh, you know, more software driven and have like shipped software faster than us. Um, there's some companies that have taken the same approach to us where they're planning offsites and they're also trying to build software. There's ones that are purely trying to build software. have never planned an offsite in their entire lives, um, either before starting the company or during. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I stand by our strategy. You know, I think it's uh, giving us a defensible business in a vacuum of, of a software business or a service business. Should we want to go back to that? Um, but I think the challenge is not getting trapped in that if our long-term goal is a software business. And so, um, yeah, it's been exciting to start transitioning the team to more and more of a software business, apply what we've learned. And now we have two options uh, of working with clients. One is we still do end-to-end offsite planning. Um, right now we have a sort of a 40 person minimum. So if you have a 40 person company and you're planning a team retreat, uh, then we can do this end-to-end service. We'll help you with all things, venue selection, negotiating, contracting. We'll help you with flights. We'll help you with travel visas for international teams. Uh, we'll build the agenda with you hour by hour. We'll manage your budget line item by line item. We'll book all the activities, book all the meals. Um, if you're 100 people or more, we'll actually be on ground with you to facilitate. Uh, we'll facilitate communications to your team before and after the offsite. So completely end to end. But we've raised our contract minimums you know, over time. And it used to be like 10 person offsites, no problem. Now, you know, it's essentially a 40 person offsite or a commitment to do multiple offsites where the total attendee count is, is 40 or more. Um, as we've you know increased the contract minimums, we're getting less and less clients to hit our revenue goals, and then we're generating more and more business through software, which is uh, essentially Airbnb for offsites. So, in that model, you can just go to offsite.com right now. You can make an account for free, uh, and then you can book your venue through us. 
Uh, so you sort of search by however many people you're planning for, where you're going, budget, and then you get hundreds of uh, curated offsite venues to pick from all around the world where uh, you click a couple times and a request goes to the hotel, you wait 24 hours, you get a detailed proposal back from those hotels uh, and other venues. And because we've partnered with these hotels, you're saving 20, 30, 40% even on your room blocks, on meeting space. Uh, and ultimately you could just book through us uh, and handle the rest of your of the planning yourself at this point. And so uh, that's sort of a, a freemium model or like a free to get started. Uh, we do charge a platform fee similar to like Uber Eats or Airbnb uh, on a transaction, but you're saving all this time, saving all this money. You're going to have a great on the ground experience. Uh, and then we're adding different categories to that uh, to basically start cannibalizing our own business. So like we're adding speakers and facilitators to the marketplace. We're adding travel support to the marketplace. Um, we're adding event production staff to the marketplace. You can hire freelancers to plan your offsite. You can hire like, you know, small mom and pop businesses to plan your offsites um, that we've vetted and we trust. And so um, you can sort of see how we're just sort of slowly but surely like picking off the most time intensive, most capital intensive parts of planning an offsite and turning it into software. Uh, and then over time, it'll be like a budget builder and a, an agenda builder, like uh, pre and post offsite feedback forms, like all facilitated through software so that you know, maybe possibly one day you don't need uh, someone to plan your offsite. You can just do it yourself in, in a few clicks. Like uh, you could use Canva to make a basic design. Yeah, that's so awesome. I, I wonder like if the ultimate disruption to your service business would be like a co-pilot, like a GPT powered co-pilot that essentially like as you build out all these categories in your marketplace product side of the business, you can then basically, you know, have like a short, like, you know, five question survey about like what type of offsite the, co the company is trying to plan. And then it just goes right into like a chat GPT style interface where you can just talk through it with the the agent the ai agent and uh it just sort of like plans out the whole thing for you and then you have like a really nice gui that just sort of like organizes it all and sort of adds up the total cost and kind of pulls together all the details in a really simple like you know automated chat interface uh so it's basically it's, it's like a marketplace yeah. business i think it's possible and i uh i think we're a few years away from that um at least my my take, my hypothesis is, uh, well, we're, we're choosing not to do that right now. Um, the reason we're choosing not to do it is because we've now talked to thousands of companies planning offsites and really gotten to understand our ideal client profile. And not a single person has said, I want an AI assistant to plan my offsite. Like they just want to plan the offsite in the fastest possible amount of time so that they can do their other job because it's typically like a again like a chief of staff an ea a head of people maybe even a founder or like the leader of a team they already have a full-time job uh, or like two or three jobs uh and so they don't want to spend time planning offsites. um they also want to keep it within budget uh and so they're looking to save money uh and so they don't really care if it's a service or a software they just want the this done for them uh so that is what they're ultimately looking for and so we're providing ways to do it for them um do you like I think that's kind of like packageitize or whatever like sort of like bundle up a lot of these things like 
four or five vendors in a venue and sort of like pull it together. So it's like really reusable where you can say like, all right, this type of offsite can be reused across multiple companies. So we do that increasingly on the back end. But again, that's there's a great question. I've had like debates with my team for two years on this, but uh, I've had team members probably now and, and certainly in the past that have uh, thought about offering customers that option. But I've always gone back to like, what does the customer want? And they not a single customer has asked for a packaged offsite where they just give us $3,000 per person and we do everything. So while they want it done for them, they also do want to impart their vision on the offsite, um, you know, have us essentially be the arms and, you know, the, the, yeah, the arms and legs to carry out their grand mastermind vision, but they don't want to be fully removed from decision-making. They just want it to go from 50, 100 hours of planning to five or 10 hours of decision-making. Um, and so, yeah, like I think that's, these are the things where it's like, if you do things that don't scale, if you're really like listening to your customers, hopefully you're building software over time that actually solves the problem. Whereas there's so many different ways you could possibly build the wrong software uh, like we could have said, Hey, like, let's build this like AI powered assistant. Hey, let's, let's do packaged offsites where you can like click one button and give us lots of money. And, you know, the things will happen on the back end. Um, and I, I just don't think those lead to a successful company for us when you have limited time and, uh, capital to, to deploy. Um, but that's just my current thought process. Like I could be very wrong. Uh, I'm a first time tech founder. Uh, I just see all these possible ways to go wrong. Um, I've seen other competitors sort of try these routes of just being software developers, not, like not truly understanding the customer. And I think they're just going to run out of money uh, or or not quite get to product market fit uh, because they're not building something that the market actually wants. I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. That's absolutely a common thing. So you hit the nail on the head. I, it's almost like you're taking a page out of the Jeff Bezos book, like just pure customer obsession and just, you know, do exactly what the customer wants and uh, deliver just exceptional customer experiences. And then, you know, kind of like the business model figures itself out and kind of works itself out over time. Trying. Yeah. Anytime I'm, you know, being uh, compared to Jeff Bezos, that's a good thing for for the most part. <laughs> so. Did you get your yacht yet? <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. We'll nice, see if man. I can get, uh, we'll see what kind of boat I can get from, you know, offsite. If it's like a Hot Wheels boat or if it's like a small boat or if it's a yacht, you know, I don't know where in the journey, like we'll, we'll exit this company and uh, whatnot, but I'm, I'm having a blast right now. We're, we're hopefully still in the very early, very early innings of building this. And I think we have the shot of building like a, a category defining company, um, building that like ramp or Brex for this space. And um, that's what excites me right now is like, I, I hope that any company I start again in the future has the chance of being the category defining company uh, the way Offsite does. Like it, for, for all the ups and downs we've had to date, uh, if I look at the competitive landscape, if I look at the market size, 
it's like we have as good of a shot as anyone to build the category defining company or or get up there with the you know top two or three. Um, it's not going to be easy to get there, but it, it the path seems pretty clear. Um, like I'm doing annual planning right now. I'm like, okay, these metrics are kind of easy to define. Uh, <laughs> they're going to be hard to hit, but you know, there's a pretty clear definition of what we need to do. Uh, now it's just a matter of executing, but. I think that's a pre- pretty privileged position to be in versus sort of having so many unknown unknowns and not knowing like what the North Star is or who you're building for or why it's important. Like all these things are pretty clear for us. And you know, we, we have as good of a shot as anyone to win, which is all, all you can ask for. Yeah, it's really like uh, it's a beautiful thing when, you know, kind of like the strategy is so clear and it's just a matter of executing uh, consistently and uh, ferociously on that strategy. Uh, I'm curious. So your your marketplace, the software side of the business, how do you monetize that? Is that sort of like Airbnb, where it's like a percentage of the um, the transaction, or is it you know on a lead by lead basis, where you just charge sort of for like connecting the customer with the venue or the the vendor? Uh, how does that monetization work? Yeah, right now it's a commission from the vendors and also a platform fee for users uh, if they're not like a end-to-end service uh, client. So if, if you're doing an end-to-end planning uh, effort with us, we waive all the platform fees. If all you do is you know go to offsite.com, make an account, start searching, um, it's free up until when you book through us. Then we do a small platform fee, um, but it's you know you're saving twenty percent or more. We charge seven percent. Everyone's happy. Nice. That's really awesome. Do you have like, are all the profiles like publicly listed so you can get like the SEO juice out of uh, all the data you have? Not yet, but uh, I I am in the earliest days of my SEO experiments. Uh, Maybe one day soon we should make them public. Uh, We kind of have like the puzzle pieces to do so. Um, Like we have a feature that the engineering team built where you could sort of share the profiles and someone can view it without being uh, a user. And so we, we built that initially to give hotels the ability to see their profile before um, going live. Because so we haven't actually built the uh, vendor login details yet. Uh, sort of like just prioritizing what will save users the most time and money possible uh, when booking their offsite venue. The answer is not, or has not to date been giving vendors their own dashboards to edit their own profiles. Uh, so we just built tooling on the back end to do that quickly. But going into 2024, uh, we are reaching a point where having like vendor logins will be pretty important uh, so that like it, it'll increase the speed at which they reply to users um, and hopefully like even answer some of the users' questions as opposed to us answering them. Uh, so we're kind of just bit, figuring out the product roadmap, like what puzzle pieces have to come back into play to solve more and more of the, the customer pain. Uh, and so again, that's like pretty clear product roadmap. Like we need, you know, we need A, B, C, D, and E to become a functioning marketplace and sort of scale up. Um, but you'd be surprised how far you can get without uh, having all those puzzle pieces. Like we've had you know, over $10 million, like, you know, exchanged through the marketplace, but we don't have payment rails yet. And so uh, we just are connecting people offline and it's, it's working just fine. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, 
So yeah, it's amazing what you can do with uh, little to no tech, uh, you know, kind of building just even just good marketing, you know, it's going back to WeWork, like there was kind of nothing technical about that business, but they kind of position themselves as a tech company just because they were, you know, sort of like technologist minded founders and they, you know, had a really good website basically. Yeah. Well, it's also important. Like, like we do, we do have a lot of tech now, but it's like all on the user side of the platform or essentially the demand side of the marketplace right now. Uh, we haven't built a lot for the supply side, but they're a pretty captive audience. Um, for other marketplaces, that would be different. Like they might optimize for the supply side, uh, building technology there, like classic examples would be Uber and Lyft, uh, sort of fighting for drivers. Uh, that side was more important to them for a while than the user side. Uh, and so it's sort of this give and take. And, you know, I'm a first time marketplace founder as well. So like kind of learning all different marketplace dynamics and the different levers we could pull between supply and demand. Um, and even like the different business models you can go for, like the commission model makes sense for us, but you could do like a pay per lead model like Thumbtack does. Um, there's sort of like a, a sort of a advertising bid model that you can do as well, like to based on like how much supply side is paying, like they're going to show up in search results uh, in a certain order at a certain time. So like there, there's so many different ways we could do this, um, but- It probably increase, it increase your cash flow velocity too. If you're monetizing on the lead, it gets like cash in the door faster, I would imagine. Uh, how, how do you drive demand on like, you have like a two, so, you know, two-sided marketplace is what we're talking about here. Uh, how do you drive like distribution for both sides? You have the sort of like, we'll call them the consumer side of the marketplace, which is these, you know, chief of staff or, you know, EAs planning these retreats. And then you've got the vendor side, which is the venues, the, you know, uh, catering companies, the experiential companies, like all these different companies that are providing services or goods to the, the offsite event, uh, how do you drive distribution on both of those two channels? Yeah, it's like, you know, competitors, close your ears. Like, I don't want you listening to this. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'll talk about the demand side a bit. Like, um, you know, we, we, fit, we kind of built a very detailed ideal client profile internally, like not, you know, including title, like company size, um, but even looking at like, where where do these employees live? Uh, is that the same city or is that a different city than their employer? You know, are there certain industries we should target? Um, and then like, what are the psychographics of that ideal client profile? Like what uh, issues does that person have? What are their fears? What are their aspirations? What color deodorant do they wear? <laughs> like, you know, uh, getting a little silly there, but really just trying to fully understand your ideal client profile and then thinking about where do those people live online or, or even offline, you could test, you know, various marketing channels there. And so uh, just started like listing all the possible marketing channels that we thought could work, uh, started stack ranking them based on the ones that we thought would um, be easiest to scale based on um, our own experiences and, and also sort of uh, the ones we thought like the most leads could come from. Uh, and so we do a lot of outbound email, like that has been uh, a very scalable channel for us. And we're sending like thousands of emails a month, um, you know, also doing like outbound on LinkedIn and, and things like that. Um, I just started building an email newsletter, like we're, you know, approaching a thousand subscribers, which like may not sound that impressive, but it's like, you know, almost a thousand of our ideal client profiles. And like, 
we had a thousand customers, we would be, you know, a multi, like, like, you know, eight, nine figure business. So uh, we don't need that many people to be booking offsites relative to other marketplaces to, to win. Um, so a lot of content marketing. And I think that's one of the pieces that separates us from competitors is like, we are, are really building thought leadership in this space. Uh, like most people don't know how to run an optimal offsite. Uh, and a lot of the competitor CEOs like don't have experience facilitating offsites themselves. They don't have experience uh, being keynote speakers at uh, or or sort of running uh, team retreats. And like I have over a decade of that before starting offsite. Like I, I worked uh, as an early employee at fifteen five, which is like one of the leading employee engagement and performance management software companies. I've I've written books and was like a TED and TEDx speaker, and so I was invited to keynote a lot of offsites and facilitated executive team retreats in the Fortune one thousand. Uh, ran my own mastermind groups for entrepreneurs for a few years before the pandemic and like did all the logistics of planning an offsite essentially, but also like told people what to do and like really obsessed about the uh, interactions between attendees of these offsites. And so we're kind of building like the, like trying to figure out how to programmatically take the average offsite that we're planning and elevate that experience over time. And it, it's everything from the logistics and like how to plan that to how do you plan an agenda and how do you plan an agenda based on the type of offsite, the type of company, um, employee engagement data that's coming in. So we're getting that through like pre-offsite feedback forms that we're working on with clients and like post-offsite feedback forms to track the employer net promoter score and like connected us to colleague scores before and after an offsite. And so uh, just sharing some of this thought leadership publicly uh, is making, you know, prospects and, and users alike realize that we actually know our shit and that, you know, this is the free stuff we're getting out. Like imagine what we're doing for our, our actual clients, uh, and what we're programming into software. So uh, that's been really helpful. I think content marketing could be uh, sort of a, I think, I think outbound is sort of a repeatable playbook that I've seen a lot of companies nail. Uh, there's a predictability of it over time. I think content marketing is really important when you're, kind of creating a category like we are with offsites and you, there's an education opportunity. Um, like we're not, we're not yet a commodity like uh, some other types of software. Uh, and so we're sort of educating people on why to even have offsites in the first place and how to think about it. Um, yeah. And then I, I think uh, in this sort of world of AI and, and like all this craziness online, like we've also really invested in just building relationships with our, um, prospects. So we're, we're doing like sponsorships of, you know, in-person events and partnering with various communities where I, I, our uh, ideal clients live uh, online and in person. Um, so yeah, we've just tinkered with a bunch of stuff. Um, sort of what got us here won't get us there. So we've sort of now built a playbook to run a seven-figure and growing service business and, you know, testing different marketing channels to scale up uh, sort of the product marketing and sort of new user creation. Uh, we're testing some of the things that have worked for the other business, but we're also testing things like SEO, which uh, could work at scale for driving thousands and thousands of accounts. And, um, you know, sure, paid ads like could be a more predictable driver of like account growth. Uh, so there's all these other marketing channels that we're considering for the software side of the business. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting uh you know, set of uh, channels there. Uh, you know, it's like there's there's so many different channels to use when 
scaling a business and it's, you know, you can't do all of them well, especially if you're building them all from the ground up, you can't do them all well. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the, like, the simplest way to think about it is like one, uh, do very intense customer development. I think everyone skips that part. Like go interview your top paying clients, go, you know, do research to the point where it, it seems stupid and, and repetitive, but like you should get to the point where you can build an entire profile where you know every nuanced thing about your ideal client profile, like the phrases they would use to describe your product or service, um, where they go to get their information online, um, what communities they're a part of, like go do very deep customer development work, step one. Step two, run quick and cheap marketing experiments, like a week long and you know, $100. Or like if you're a Fortune 1000, it might be a month long and a $10,000 budget. But that relative to like, scaling it that's very small but quick and cheap experiments and then three is to scale up what works so just like ratchet up the volume double triple down on the experiments that are working um so that's are there any I've, recent exper experiments that you did that were you know either pass or fail that were just really interesting learnings for you uh yeah i mean some of the seo experiments right now are, are pretty interesting like we're doing um we'll do like three articles that are uh the same template, but uh, like top offsite venues in Miami, top offsite venues in Austin, top offsite venues in San Diego, and like really just trying to see if we can sort of index them, drive a decent amount of traffic. Um, and then those are starting to generate some returns, like nothing crazy, but sort of very easy to look at that experiment, see. Is it a success or not? Like, are you driving X number of views to the website? And then, so the way to scale up is like, all right, well, let's make you know an article about every city that we have listed on the platform. Um, and you could have you know hundreds of articles in that same format in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, and then you can get fancy about like making the articles better and like having content upgrades and um, you know things like that. But you can then scale that with other, you know, templates and then running little experiments there and, you know, continuing to like scale up uh, the, the ones that work. So that's like, I, I'm no SEO expert, but, you know, like the thinking of doing like little, little tiny experiments and then being able to scale it up. It's like very clear how to scale that uh, if we we're, were successful in some of the experiments. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, I, uh, I was working with a limo company like a decade ago uh, and their top performing blog article was bachelorette party ideas. And it was yeah. like, basically it was just a list of five things that uh, you could do on a bachelorette party to like, basically kind of like planned out some different ideas for a bachelorette party. And then the last one was, you know, make sure you get a party bus. Like that's really going to make the whole experience next level. So, and then it just, you know, obviously CTA right to the, you know, book a party bus page. Uh, so that's like really, and then it's also, it's kind of like, if you kind of give it to them, like, all right, if you want to book the offsite, here's everything you have to do. Uh, but you know, you kind of like lay it out for them and then they're like, oh crap. Yeah. This is going to be a hundred hours of work. And then it's like, oh, but by the way, we can do it for you. So just click this button and then, you know, we'll, uh, we'll make it happen. Yeah. Well, it's all, like, I'm also looking at the competitive landscape and like, we're probably, we're slower on the SEO front than some of our competitors, but they're like you know, if it's an alphabet, like they're all at like letter B and C, whereas we're at A. 
Um, but like no, none of them have gotten to Z, like, and none like don't look like they're positioned to do so. So I'm like, oh, well, if we just kind of start running some experiments, like find something that works, like we can scale the shit out of this. Like again, like try and be that category defining company. So things like that are exciting too, where you know it's it's uh not only an opportunity to find what what can scale, but like what can help sort of paint like win the category, like define uh your space. And so SEO could be one of those things for us. Content marketing could be one of those things for us. Um I guess outbound email could be like we just email everyone under the sun faster than everyone else, but like that doesn't seem as uh that, that seems just like more of, of something you would do to grow a business versus like, this is how we're going to win, right? Yeah, so uh, I, so that, that's awesome. I, I want to close out one more thing uh, before we hop off here. So uh, you raised 3.1 million uh, across your pre-seed and seed round in 2022 and 2023, which is amazing. I mean, that was post the, uh, the ZERP environment, the zero interest rate uh environment of the 2020 and 20 early 20 you know 2021 period where you know money was just flying around like uh you know like crazy it was like a champagne party for you know vcs and and startup founders raising ridiculous you know valuations ridiculous you know mega rounds and uh and then it all kind of dried up like early to mid 2022 the funding environment you know interest rates started going up there was a lot of phone you know a lot of uh fear uh uncertainty you know fud as they call it on the streets these days uh so all that uh all that fud kind of set in uh in the the vc world and uh you know it, the rounds have been like very far and few between and very small uh but you you, you know for a pre-seed slash seed round 3.1 million is pretty big uh maybe not for like 2021 silicon valley standards but certainly you know in general a 3.1 million pre-seed and seed is a sizable round and then especially in this sort of like fud uh vc climate so uh you know how did you do it how'd you raise that much of a seed round in this environment and then what was that process like was it hard you know what what kind of uh what was kind of like the winning recipe that worked for you guys yeah it was extremely messy uh the i think one of the positives that came out of it is we have over 70 angel investors um like smaller check but extremely value add angels like many of our angels at a $5,000 investment are more valuable than some of our institutional investors. Did um, you set up like an SPV to, to so your cap table is not massive or? Uh... <laughs> so lessons learned along the way, like we did have two angelist roll-up vehicles. Um, so we do have maybe half of our angels through those. And then the other half are direct to the cap table. Um, if in the future, I would only do it through you know, roll-up vehicles unless they were like really large uh, individual investments. Um, so definitely lesson learned there, but, you know, even though I sort of failed on that front, um, the win is that we got all these people, you know, including like customers, including CEOs of companies like remote and Gainsight and the co-founders of vendor, um, the CEO of convene, like all these sort of remote hybrid work players are, uh, behind us and, and like, they're really valuable when, uh, we need them. And so. I think that's a huge win. Something I would 100% do again in the future is try and get small check value at investors. Um, we ended up raising maybe uh, about a million from angels. And then the other 2 million were from institutional investors. Um, we went out to raise uh, our true seed, you know, our seed round. 
um, in April of 2022, which was the worst timing in 15 years to go raise money. Uh, and we we did so around like a an investor week sort of thing out of an accelerator. So there, there's like reasons for it, but it was just bad timing. Um, we ended up having to cobble together some larger uh, safes uh, from institutions um, throughout 2022. And then in 2023, we did uh, another, uh, we did, we kind of wrapped it up in a bow in like a priced round to bring in more money. So it's like the longest stretch of fundraising, uh, like basically a year and a half between angels and uh, institutional and just sort of rolling uh, fundraising. Uh, but I think most founders are probably fundraising all the time anyways, even if it's like the press announcements are buttoned up and look pretty. Uh, the reality is like you're going to take your angels, your pre-seed, your family and friends when you can. And then you're going to like start building relationships with the VCs for the seed round, um, sort of like do six months of relationship building and like getting the company in the right spot and then run a two month process. Like, this would be a, in a perfect case scenario, right? Like. Uh, run a tight fundraising process to like get the best terms and the best partner out of that. But like you've been fundraising for six months and just building relationships and sending monthly investor updates uh, or community updates. And you kind of do the same thing. Like you make a funding announcement and like, if you're smart about it, you should open up an angelist role of vehicle and take all the new angels and people that are interested in your company. once you've announced, uh, because you'll have inbound interest. Um, and then you could start sort of telling the story of seed to series A uh, and like build relationships a year out, six months out. And like, you're not fundraising actively, but you're building those relationships. You're sort of telling the story so that when you finally go pitch investors, it's not just a one-time pitch. It's uh, a track record of a year or two years of work uh, and updates where you're, they're seeing the progress over time. And so uh, we're not fundraising right now, but like I also in this market wouldn't say no to a larger check if it was the right partner. Um, and we certainly want to raise a Series A in the future. So I, every quarter, I send an update to potential Series A investors, like, hey, here's what we're doing. Um, I send monthly investor updates in case our investors want to double down at, at any point in time. So um, those would be some lessons learned. Uh, yeah, but you, you know, it, it was definitely messy. Uh, I'm glad we got it done. Uh, it's still very messy. It's like probably the worst funding environment. Uh, and so uh, I know we wanted to talk about like, how that impacts uh, sort of the the burn rates in the past and like sort of do things that don't, they're like scaling at all costs or growth at all costs versus like now we're, we all have to run more profitable companies. Um, but it, it's definitely changed the way we've operated. And, you know, it actually leads back to having a, a service business in the short term is pretty nice when we can like make money uh, and like almost, you know, we're, we're about to become profitable just on the service business. And like, you know, next year it's really about, continuing the service business growth, but like having the software business grow exponentially to the point where that could be like a series A backable entity uh, in and of itself. So uh, in interesting times at uh, Ridgemont High. <laughs> yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah. It's like trying to, you know, especially you know, like in the past, it was fun times. Now it's interesting times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no doubt there. I mean, it's like uh, that funding environment there was like trying to sell like ice cubes to Alaskans or something, you know, it was just uh really tough market. Uh, so, uh, you know, go, going back, just two more questions on the funding. So you, uh, you know, essentially uh, clo close this, this, you know, sizable seed round in, in this, this terrible climate, like what was, 
what would you say the level of difficulty like zero to 10 was? And then what was the the one thing, if you could point to one thing, what was the one thing that you felt like got that deal closed and got those investors like hooked and interested in being a part of your your journey with the offsite? Uh, di- different tranches of money within that 3.1 have different scores. Uh, I would say like the first million, probably... Uh, five out of 10, you know, like it's always hard, but like now that I've had the, the various experience, let's call it five out of 10, the second million, um, probably a three out of 10, honestly, it was like more of a relationship building effort. Um, it was, uh, one, uh, previous investor that just sort of doubled down. And then it was a corporate investor, um, the automatic, which is the owners of WordPress and Tumblr. Um, but I've known, uh, Matt Mullenweg, the, the founder and CEO, uh, over a decade. Not not very well, but um, he was a contributor to one of my books. And then I've kept in touch with him over the years and sort of uh, he had he has a strong thesis about remote work. They plan a ton of offsites there. So I'd sort of been pestering him <laughs> since we started offsite. And uh, then ultimately, they wanted to make a, a, a institutional investment out of their corporate venture arm. So the middle, the middle million or so was like actually pretty easy. Um, three out of 10, the final, you know, uh, tranche of money we brought in, in like March, April of this year, n- you know, nine out of 10, oh, probably like a, an 11 out of 10. Cause there's like other, but yeah, let's go with like 9.5 out of 10. Um, cause there was a lot of moving pieces to that. It wasn't purely about, um, like I was limited in, in who I could pitch, um, based on some internal culture stuff that was happening. Um, and like, you know, there was uh, just was bad timing, like offsites are not sexy in the world of AI and all that. Um, but it, again, it came like the the main difference and uh, why we pulled it off was a relationship with our investors to date. And so giving them monthly updates, being very honest with them about things that were happening um, and sort of showing the, the path forward despite challenges. Uh, and so the, ultimately like the final money that came in was uh, one of, you know, the, one of our major investors, like doubling down or like tripling down, like coming in for a third time. Plus they brought in some LPs um, to invest uh, and that made up the money. So like the, the dynamic, like gathering the money was basically a few calls on behalf of our um, previous investors, but sort of getting like, like navigating what we were going through with them in real time made it very challenging. Um, and then we had a messy cap table, which didn't help from like all the direct investments from angels. And so we, we figured it out, you know, default alive. Um, but keep your cap tables clean kids and, uh, you know, definitely send those monthly investor updates out. Like, I think that's, I I've done a few angel investments, like maybe seven or eight into friends companies. And like, uh, there's a clear difference between the companies that send me monthly updates and like do it in the first you know few days. And then there's a couple of companies that never update. And then there's, you know, a couple that update like on a quarterly basis. And, you know, on average, the ones that are doing monthly updates are growing faster, are more successful than the ones that do quarterly or, or no updates at all. I think it's mostly, uh, it's like an exercise in self-reflection on behalf of the founders and making sure that they're, um, thinking about the business programmatically and, and systemically. Um, it's also the communication with investors. People can offer support, bail them out like when you need help. Uh, so 
yeah, I, I benefit a lot from our angel and investor base. And, you know, I, I now send updates, you know, ideally on the first day of the month, uh, if not within the first few days of the month. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom packed in everything you just said. Uh, really impressive outcomes here with what you've done so far. And I'm super excited to follow along the journey as you progress this thing and do your A and, you know, eventually, you know, scale, uh, scale, scale your, your product, the this, this SaaS side of the, you know, the marketplace, SaaS side of the business and super excited to just follow along and see the journey. Uh, Anything, uh, Jared, as we close this out, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, where can people find you? And, you know, obviously we talked a lot about offsite, but is there anything else you want to plug about yourself or, you know, for people to connect? Not really. Um, go to go to offsite.com. Like we spent a lot of money on the domain. So <laughs> go, uh, go check it out and make an account. Um, if you want to plan an offsite with us, uh, happy to have you use the software and uh, just play there or happy to help you with, with end-to-end planning as well. If you tell me you were on Brian's pod or you heard me on Brian's podcast. I'll give you some sort of discount. Um, and yeah, I'm Jared at offsite.com as well. Uh, if you want to reach out and say hi, um, but otherwise, thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. I'm curious how much, how much was the domain, uh, offsite.com? I uh, can't say, but it wasn't like, it wasn't too bad. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't terrible. Uh, and it is something I would do again. Like I, I think, you know, future there's like, the list of mistakes I've made is very long, but like some of the lessons I'm learning, like an, one another one of those would be, you know, get uh, an awesome domain, you know, a company name that like pass, like passes the radio test, like you can do a radio ad on it, like people can easily hear it and go to the website. Um, I think it makes a huge difference in terms of branding and seriousness and just uh, discoverability. Like we have zero SEO right now relative to where we will be in the future. And like, we still get a ton of business from just Google and people looking us up. So uh, yeah.